A question I get every once in a while is where I learned photography from. And I got to tell you, I didn't go to photo school, but I, I also don't think it'd be fair to say that I was self-taught. I, I owe a lot to people on the internet like DP Review, Philip Bloom, Chase Jarvis, Stu Mauschewitz, Still Motion, and so many others that I can't think of right now. And a lot of the reason that this podcast exists is to start conversations about how we can improve our creative work. The internet lets every generation from now on learn virtually any skill that they want just by spending the time doing the research and then applying those skills. And you can create a career for yourself, and I'm living proof of that. So I want to have these conversations with you guys so I can hopefully get that information back out there that was so helpful for me at the beginning. Today, my guest is Nicole S. Young, who might be better known as Nicolezy. She's done a lot to help people improve their photography, including publishing a book, Food Photography from Good Shots to Great Shots. She does training materials on Lightroom, Photoshop, Luminar, On One, and more. She not only has a wide set of skills, but is great at communicating those skills to both novices and professionals. So I thought a good place to start the conversation was by asking Nicole, did you go to school for photography? I didn't. I actually uh, joined the Navy instead of going to college. Oh, wow. <laughs> kind of just, I learned like a lot of people learn now, yeah. photography-wise. I learned just through researching online and just doing it and just exploring and experimenting and all the things we're probably going to be talking about. How long have you been shooting for now? Uh, if you count high school, it's been a little over 20 years. So about, I think it was 1997 that I got my first actual camera. I learned with a darkroom. You know, we didn't really have digital photography in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So I... I had to take an art class in uh, high school and wasn't really into photography. You know, I'd taken it, I'd probably had a camera sitting floating around the house that we used for the family and snapshots on vacations and things like that. And I was like, well, I'll do photography. It looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. And one little decision like that, and it kind of like shaped the rest of my life. And I started, you know, I've always been artistic. I'd been into drawing and expressing myself that way and poetry and things like that and started taking this photography class. And I just, I fell in love with it, and a lot of it had to do with my teacher. I had a really great uh, teacher that was just really funny, and, you know, he really helped everybody learn photography in a fun way. And I just remember having this light bulb moment in my head. Uh, we were learning about – oh, I don't remember these specifics, but it was something about aperture and shutter speed and ISO or, you know, the obviously film speed at the time and how – all of a sudden in my head, I just, it all came together. And I was like, I understand this. And it was just boom. And I was so happy and just went full force there. But I, you know, it was still film. And mm-hmm. I I think I wanted, I wanted to get into like photojournalism maybe or sports photography. But in my, in my mind, I was like, it's going to be impossible for me to do this. Just be so, it's such a hard industry to break into. And I also thought that if I did photography full time, that I would kind of lose my love for it. So I ended up joining the Navy instead, and I was a Korean linguist in the Navy for over eight years. Wow, that's not what I expected you would have been doing. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> I know. It was another thing that I really enjoyed was ling- uh, language. But I did that, and I, I loved that. That was a fun job. Really, really fun to have that experience as well. Were you shooting at the time? I was I was shooting on the side. Hmm. So I you know, had, a, I had upgraded eventually to uh, my first actual SLR, digital SLR, was a Nikon D2H. I'd been shooting Nikon just like an F4. I still have that camera. It's my old Oh, yeah. Film. I love the F4. Film camera. Yeah. I just had, I made that tr- transition into digital. 
And I really needed to learn it, you know. And so I was like, how am I going to learn digital photography? I kind of had the basics down. I, I definitely wasn't anywhere where I am, anywhere near where I am now in, in terms of my understanding of photography and light. But I had the basics down, you know, with understanding f-stop, shutter speed, et cetera. And so I actually, that's how I got into stock photography was kind of a way for me to really kind of focus my photography energy into one, kind of push it into one direction. And so that way I was able to, you know, it kind of gave me a reason to shoot. And so that's that's kind of the kind of the condensed version of, of how I really kind of got started with photography. That's probably something we have in common with how our educational process went is how much of it came through I stock photo through uh, selling our work, which is a funny way of just kind of jumping into the deep end of treating it like a job, right? Uh, that, that, right. that was the big change of iStock at the time. And, and for anybody that only is familiar with iStock or Shutterstock as they are now, it's it's good to know that there was a there was a golden era <laughs> that that we're not necessarily in anymore, where the community was smaller and it, it really felt. It felt different back then. There was less mm-hmm. of a, a huge mass market doing it. So it was a little bit easier to make a, a real living off of it. Like you, you could just kind of, if you succeeded, you could have a slightly better chance of having real income from it. Whereas now I have a hard time having a strong recommendation for people to really get into stock unless it's on the side. Um, there, mm-hmm. There is no guarantee that stock could be your main income now. I think it's a little bit of chance and putting a ton of work into it. Whereas back then, you could really just start experimenting and, like I was saying, like learn by rejection, basically. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, like just having the editors shoot stuff down and tell you what's wrong with it. And at the time, you're banging your head against the wall. Like, well, I thought I, thought I had this photo perfect, but yeah. it can be really helpful to get that criticism. Oh, yeah. I learned almost everything I know it feels like through being rejected. I have my photos rejected on iStock, and a lot of it was the post-processing, but not all of it. You know, there were other things like like the light was bad or just things that I couldn't see then that I can obviously look at now and cringe because I'm like, oh, God, that was such a horrible photo. I think really good lessons from it that some people miss now if they're learning by, uh, say, Instagram, right, which is a similar situation. It's like just throw your stuff on the internet and the amount of likes is sort of like your editing process, right? People Mm -hmm. tell you how good they think it is. What what we had that you would be missing now is the idea of editing everything for a client and having things prepared for a hundred percent zoom in preview. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember I was actually talking to uh, Brianna about this recently. Who uh, now she's the CEO at Stocksy. She was one of the lead editors in the uh, at the early stages of iStock Photo. She was kind of organizing the editor team. And she was just talking about that experience of like that she kind of blames herself for having that really, really harsh technical criticism, which now is out the door at Stocksy. I mean, Stocksy is mm-hmm. much more uh, artistic and like it's, it's about the image, not the quality. But I think that was a good boot camp, you know, like make sure oh, it's yeah. perfect, low noise, sharp, uh, edited to be precise. Oh, yeah. You know, and obviously I'm, I'm on Stocksy as well. And the... Uh, I'm not going to – the standards have shifted. You know, they've – like you said, the the quality still has to be good, but it's definitely more focused on the artistic quality of the photo, not necessarily the technical quality. And and it's still a learning experience for me there because there's a – it has – Stocksy has kind of its own – like from what – from my perspective at least, it has this – its own kind of like – it's hard to explain. Its own aesthetic in a way. Uh, I'm not going to say it's trendy or it's whatever, but it's different, a little different than what I do. So I'm still kind of learning it. Mm-hmm. If that's the best way. And I'm, but I'm learning a lot about my own photos 
And I, I upload stuff there all the time and it gets rejected. And I, you know, I, I always, it's, I always just brush it off. It never, it never hurts my feelings. I never get anything rejected, but it's, it's another way for me to learn something and kind of uh, learn how to improve my photos, even if it's improving them. So they work for whatever, you know, client in this case, Stocksy in a way is, is kind of the client I'm working for. It's funny. That was, uh, I mean, that was a conversation we had a lot when we were starting Stocksy was this feeling of like, we're bring, we're inviting a lot of people over for my stock photo. That's where a lot of our friends are. That's the community we know. But there's also this kind of um, untraining, <laughs> of, <laughs> of, yeah. you know, that we had all built up together. We all did it to ourselves. We learned together. We went to photo events and taught each other good and some bad habits that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think ended up turning into what Stocksy was a, a movement against is this idea of super clinical, maybe kind of fake stock, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and we all have. <laughs> yeah. we all, if we shot for stock for iStock, we all have those in our portfolio. I think, uh, and I would say that probably the best thing that Stocksy's doing for me personally is it's helping me kind of stay current. That's probably the best word I can use to describe right. the aesthetic mm-hmm. of Stocksy's. Mm-hmm. It's current, you know, because it's easy to photograph things, and they kind of have that. Even stuff from ten years ago is already starting to feel dated, and so it's good to kind of make sure that you stay up with kind of the the times, and you know. Kind of, but also try and keep things timeless. But that's difficult to do, to keep things t- timeless. So how can people apply this to their regular lives that aren't, you know, submitting to an agency yet? They might be one step earlier than that. They're just getting started. How can you have that uh, feedback loop where you're getting useful feedback and productive feedback? Because I found early on when I just showed my friends and family, it would be all positive mm-hmm. feedback. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to be supportive. They want to tell you you're doing a great job. But sometimes a hard truth can teach you a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of tough uh, because, like, a lot of the times we're mostly just showing our photographs to our friends and our families, and and you have to take that criticism, good or bad, with a grain of salt because if it's, like, a photograph of your niece or your nephew, then everybody's going to love the photo if it's, you know, if it's in focus course, and, it, yeah. you know, it's not overexposed or anything like that. Oh, it's so cute because this smile is so cute. But even your friends, if it's, if it's an okay photo, you know, they're still going to say it's good. And mm-hmm. it's – you have to really find – even if it's just one or two people that you admire, that you look up to, that you respect as a photographer who will give you that honest feedback. Uh, and I've had people who, you know, I feel I would say are above me, you know, or whatever you'd call it, photographically or somebody that I would highly respect who I feel I can get actual feedback from because posting something online, I mean, I see people post photos online that I would kind of have a little cringe face, you know, when I look at mm-hmm. because I see people go, oh, it's so gorgeous. Look at the colors, you know, and I'm looking at it with my somewhat over-technical eyes and going, oh my gosh, it's oversaturated. <laughs> look at that halo on the horizon. Yeah. All these things that I, you know, and, if, and I think that's just part of my, what I do internally is I almost critique every photo that I see. And I, no, I don't like voice my critique, but in my head, I look at it. And, you know, that's actually kind of a good tip in general for anybody who's learning photography is to every photo you see, or if you, you know, if you're trying to learn maybe a specific type of photo, like weddings or portraits, let's say, just for an example, you want to look at a lot of those types of photos and and see, like maybe find one that you really like. Look at it and say, why do you like that photo? You know, like, is it maybe the composition? Is it the light? Is it the colors? Is it the post-processing? But then also do the same for photos that you don't like and say, well, why don't I like that photo? You know, I think you can learn a lot from that. You know, so it's kind of like an internal critique of every image that you see. You know, I think we do it whether or not we're thinking that we're doing it. But I think it just happens kind of in your brain. Uh, second nature, especially the more you, especially people like me who do kind of like looking at photos all the time. I think that's the biggest take home I can, I, I, I want to enforce a few times while we're talking about this is looking at work that is 
much, much better than yours. Mm-hmm. I, I find a, a common issue is that photographers will set a reference point that is other peers or people that are in the same photo community or the best photographer they know personally. I think you can learn a lot more and a lot more quickly by just looking at the best in your category. And so to me, I think you find that especially by looking at commercial work more so than reading photo magazines like that. That can be a cycle I'll see some people get in is their only reference point for good photography is photo blogs and Mm -hmm. photo magazines and like photography community stuff. But that taste doesn't necessarily represent the, the wider world of photo jobs and photo work that is out there. And I, th- I think the best reference you can find, like a great example for me is I'm always looking at what Apple does, especially for commercial work, for like a really polished, clean look that has just barely a slight edge to it, but it's really high production. Apple is a great reference for that. I mean, they, if any company can afford great photographers, it's them. And they, like, there is no limit to the budget on every single photo shoot that they do. And so that's a good bar to set for yourself because they are also trying to make it look approachable. And a lot of the time they want to make it look like you could have shot it yourself. It's not a really um, fashion, like it doesn't have a lot of a fashion edge to it. It's They want to make it look like, look, using our products, you could take photos like this. <laughs> but whatever reference point you choose, I mean, there's lots out there. I think it's this challenge of being honest, the right amount of honest with yourself so that you're harsh enough, but you're not so harsh that it discourages you from shooting more in the future. And that balance can be can be really hard to find. Yeah, I agree. I think that's uh, I think that's really smart. You know, like looking I'll look at trying you made me start to think, well, what do I look at when I'm looking for photos, you know, that that uh, inspire me? And sometimes it just comes from Instagram, you know, the people you follow on Instagram. But then again, that can kind of get if you limit that too much, you know, you need to branch out and see other things because Instagram is great, and I love Instagram, and I use Instagram, but it also kind of has that, you know, finger quote, like, Instagram. <laughs> Instagram look, you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I, every time I see a photo with a person wearing a flowy dress in a place you'd never wear a flowy dress, you know, like staring up into the sky or something, it's like, oh, it's probably a great photo, but it's it's an Instagram photo. So. Sure, and I find myself attracted to the Instagram format with things that I sh- post there or shoot there mm-hmm. where I, simple things like, Things that lend themselves well to a square or vertical orientation, uh, usually with a distinct subject in the center. That right. is that is what gets the most attention forever on Instagram. I mean, take a <laughs> landscape photo and somebody's wearing a brightly colored jacket and they're small yeah. in it. You will always get likes on that. Oh, it's so fu- it's so funny to compare just real quickly. I I have a photo that it's like a a lavender field, and I just shared. It's an old photo from probably like you know eight years ago. But I was like, oh, I haven't shared this in a long time. I'm going to share this on Instagram. And then I and then I a few days later shared a photo of and it's just like a simple landscape, right? But lavender is really pretty, very symmetrical. And then I shared a photo. I, I've, I've done some underwater work where I went underwater, you know, in a cage with great white sharks. Mm-hmm. Crazy great white shark coming at the camera. And that gets like not even close <laughs> to as many likes oh, as this, this like, simple landscape. So that's just, it's funny. It's a very strange environment. <laughs> and I don't mean that as some harsh critique of what works on Instagram. I mean, I think it works because it works. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't make it bad. Uh, it's what I find myself attracted to as well. Like, it, it's okay to kind of customize things for different formats, but it's important not to get stuck in that and only know how to shoot 
in that one way. Yeah, agree. Yeah, it, looking at magazines, looking at online marketing materials, looking at movies. I mean, huge place for inspiration for me is cinema. Mm-hmm. I find that a lot of photographers, even professional photographers, have a slightly lower standard than most movies. Because in a movie, so much is on the line at every moment, and you had 50 to 100 people working on every single shot. Mm-hmm. And it, is, it was very tightly controlled. Um, there's a lot of money riding on this shot looking beautiful. Whereas most photography is done maybe by one person using the lights they have available to them. I, I think there's more sort of consistency in the quality control of visuals in film. So it's, it's not to say that film is is better, but it's a good reference point because you can always be guaranteed that somebody put a lot of thought into every moment that you're seeing on screen. Mm-hmm. So I, I just find that a, a great reference point and a constant source of personal inspiration. Yeah. I, I do that sometimes. I've I've actually screenshot or taken photos of scenes in TV shows or movies because I was like, oh my gosh, I love that. I love what they did there. Gregory Crudson, actually, if, you, if you're familiar with his work, he actually, um, he's a fantastic photographer and he does cinematic type setups. If you've ever seen any of his behind the scenes stuff. So he's actually really kind of a cool, just for just along those lines. That, well, that's, that's another place that I, I love to look is just at behind the scenes stuff. Like, um, oh, yeah. I, there's one or two Instagram accounts I, f- I follow that are just sort of setups. And the photo isn't amazing. You just pull back a few steps from how the photo was being taken and see where the lights are placed. And that can be incredibly helpful for me looking at Annie Leibovitz setups. Like just Google Annie Leibovitz lighting behind the scenes. And um, you'll always see there's like four or five people standing around holding softboxes on boom arms. And uh, yeah, I find that really interesting to look at, at, at that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. I've learned a lot through basically just seeing um, behind the scenes or like I used to watch to- um, America's Next Top Model. It's such an awful, like, it's not awful, I'm going to say, but it's a reality show. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of have to enjoy those. But I would watch those those episodes sometimes just to see the behind the scenes photo setups, the photo shoots that they're doing just for the inspiration of like, oh, what, oh, that light, look at the way that light is. That's really cool. And I can actually recall just from a post-processing standpoint, I like years ago, I did a couple of um, – just a couple of community college classes on Photoshop, and this is one of my, my very early, kind of like before I knew how to mask and do layers, you know, before I really knew Photoshop, basically. Uh, someone came in and was just talking about her work, and she opened up a photo and was just walking through the layers. And I can remember, like, so many light bulbs going off in my head just from seeing her processing, you know, the steps and the behind-the-scenes stuff from how she did everything. So even from that perspective, that's another great way to learn is just to see, you know, watch people process photos, if that's what people need to learn. I think, again, just like our personal experiences, which <laughs> I don't know how much this applies, but us going to these <laughs> photo events with, because, oh, yeah. uh, so iStock used to throw events, I, I assume they still do, called iStockalypse, where photographers from all around the world would come to one city, and, and this is how we met in person, is coming to one mm-hmm. city, and we're working together and doing photo shoots together, and then everybody sits down on their laptops and starts to edit the photos, and that is such a great way to learn, and it's it's not that anybody's intentionally giving a lesson to each other, I mean, sometimes they are, but for the most part, it's just seeing somebody right next to you do something and being able to ask, oh, oh like, why do you do it that way? Why do you put the light in that place? Why do you... And they're like, oh, this is just the way I always do it. And it, it has this effect. And all of a sudden, yeah, like you say, light bulbs go off. And um, so, yeah, shooting with other people is is a fantastic learning experience. Do you know of any kind of common ways people can get that experience now? <laughs> I would say even just going 
out with somebody and just taking pictures with somebody. Like my husband, Brian Matias, he's also a photographer. He's uh, He has a very different aesthetic than I do. And when we go out, uh, we, we lived in Portland and we're actually going to be moving back there. So I expect us to be going out and photographing a lot more waterfalls in the near future. But he will come back from, you know, out doing things and he'll show me his photos. I'm like, how did you see that? He'll have this <laughs> yeah. fantastic composition, you know, using a, a crazy wide lens or whatever he does. And I'm like, how did you even see that there? And that goes the same when, when I went to the isocalypses because I went to several of them. And you're in the same environment. A lot of times you have the same models. You know, you always consider it and you never shoot the exact same thing that somebody else did. But what's cool is you get to see how many different types of photographs you can get using kind of, you know, like uh, picking from kind of the same bucket of types of, you know, models, backgrounds, lights, et cetera. And it's just, it's really cool to see the diverse photos that you get from, you know, like just the different kind of ways that people think and the creativity. And it, I, I, that's one of my favorite things about shooting with other people is just seeing what they end up with at the end. Totally, and it's funny because yeah. sometimes Brian and I will like, I'll, I'll like intentionally not show him the photos that I'm getting because <laughs> I don't want him to, I don't want him to take my ideas. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, no, this is my special photo. Well, yeah, that was the one downside with doing things uh, in those groups is that feeling of everybody competing for the same image. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I don't know if that's the ideal situation, but uh, you know, it can help. Keeps you on your toes. Totally. There's things now as well. Like I, I've noticed Apple has been pushing their photo walks a bit more. I mean, everybody does photo walks. Uh, it's just interesting that Apple does it because they are in so many cities and it can kind of be a, an organized way to bring everybody, groups of people together. But wherever you are, uh, it would be good to just do a Google search for photo walks. And that's a, a quick way to bring together quick communities or, or meet new people in your area that are into photography as well. And you can all go out and explore and teach each other some lessons. Yeah, it's a great way to meet local photographers. But the other side of this, the other side of learning in general, is there's also the ability to pick up bad habits, too. Um, I mean, I know I've talked to some people that had what seemed like great advice for me at the time, and it takes me a year or two before I realize, wow, maybe I didn't need to be thinking about it that way. You know, it's it's kind of good to keep a diverse set of of teachers out there. Absolutely. Uh, Do you have any recommendations for online resources? Do you have places you go to every time you're looking for inspiration or a tutorial? Well, let's see. When I started, I'll just talk about like when I started because that's like the most clear in my head of what I actually go to. Uh, I remember using David Hobby's Strobist website. I think it's strobist.blogspot.com. I'm not sure if he's updated that or if he still uses that URL. Google Strobists and you'll find it if you're not already familiar with him. But he has some, you know, I remember learning just basic lighting things and creating my own little light box and doing all these fun little things from his site. I would, (laughs) Google is your friend, to be honest. It's, there aren't a lot of specific places that I go. I mostly, like, if I want to learn, oh, if I'm like, oh, crap, I can't remember how to do this thing in Photoshop, I go to YouTube and I Google it and I always find it. It's so <laughs> yeah. it's so easy now to find. You're not always, it's iffy whether you get a good tutorial or a bad, you know, or like a, eh, this person doesn't really know what they're doing. But I think that Google is really your friend. His photo books are still a thing. People, you know, like how-to photography books. I do a lot of that. I create a lot of how-to, mostly with software. A lot of people like that, you know, actually having a book that kind of has everything grouped together to kind of walk them through like a step-by-step kind of thing. I don't know. What do you, do you have places that you go to, to find stuff? Yeah, not really specific anymore. It, uh, the landscape has changed since I was doing most of my learning, like I say, but, uh, the, you know, there are some places I can 
uh, certainly recommend now. One thing, what you're saying just reminded me of, though, is that if you are looking for really specific tutorials about software, that um, the way bad habits can develop is if you get kind of a a trick or a, a hack way to do something that skips past important best practices that you may not realize you don't know yet. So, for example, you could look at a cloning tutorial in Photoshop that doesn't say anything about cloning on a new layer. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand what layers are, then you're kind of handicapped, right? Like you you don't realize what you're missing out on and you could spend a year getting that wrong. So if you're learning a new piece of software, I, I do think it's worth looking, f- watching some basic tutorials first before skipping ahead to how to do really specific things because that's how you can end up in the bad habits that you don't realize are there. So, yeah. you know, good places for that is like Linda. Uh, I've often just kind of created a Linda account for, like I kind of keep turning mine off, on and off. Turn on for like two months. <laughs> when I want to learn some new software, I'll watch all the tutorials about it and then I'll turn it back off because I'm not using it that often. I'm not going to use it all year long. Uh, also, uh, Creative Live, which I actually haven't gone there in a while. What are they, what are they up to lately? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't either, but I know that they really have expanded beyond photography, which is actually kind of cool. I should maybe refollow them on on Twitter. That's when I um, I was following them and I stopped. I'm gonna I'm gonna follow them again because <laughs> what they'll do is notify you every time that a live class is on, and the live uh-huh. the live classes are free to watch. So uh, you know, to to buy a course is something like a, a one to two hundred dollars. You know, not not cheap. Like it's it's an investment, uh, and often worth it. But if you can catch it live, then it's it's free, and you can mm-hmm. often join the chat and kind of be a part of it. So it, it's really worthwhile to kind of just keep an eye on what they're doing and be able to to see things that you may not have otherwise. And one thing I love about their format is that they are bringing in outside instructors. So uh, sometimes if you're following just one person for all of your training resources, you pick up, like I said, you pick up their habits, which I I mean, I have terrible habits too, so don't listen to anything I have to say. But by seeing a diversity of people that have totally different jobs and don't even work together, they all have different good and bad habits. And you can really, I think, learn different approaches to solving the same problem. You can uh, realize why you might do something in one context and not another. So I, I do find I, Creative Live to be uh, one of the the better resources. I yeah. think they do a great job. Yeah, just to kind of add to what you said about not creating bad habits and, you know, kind of specifically talking about software and post-processing is now that digital photography is so easy to just jump into. You can get a camera and you can start creating photos. A lot of what I see is questions that people want to do something to a photo that could have much that could have been prevented if they had photographed it properly. <laughs> right. Like like blurring the background or fo- and getting a thing, you know something in focus or maybe they want to replace the background or or replace a sky, but it's not really the best you know, it's just not photographed the best way. And that's, and there, there are so many different examples. Um, but, you know, getting the, obviously, the foundation of your photography at the, you know, before you actually try and fix everything in, in post is probably, I would say, the best thing you can do. I, I have photos that I, I look at, you know, and I'd say, oh, I would never even try to edit that or fix that. You know, so I just scrap it. I'm like, that's not, it's not even going to happen. You know, I'm either going to reshoot it or I'm just going to forget that it even was there. Uh, so that's, 
you know, getting the basics down and just making sure you're kind of creating a kind of a clean foundation photograph before you actually push it into anything afterwards to try and fix it is, I think, the, one of the better things that you can do for yourself. I think that might be an advantage. We actually had learning on film first because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think you and I were both learning around the same time, which was just before the transition or just as the the digital revolution swept in. But by learning on film, your your expectations are shifted. You know, you don't plan to completely recompose the shot later and add in a fake background and all this. You're, you're just what you shoot is, is what you get. And the filter is the film stock that you chose. And I think that's a, a really effective way of getting started. And if I, that, that might be a specific... I haven't thought this through. It's just occurring to me now, so maybe it'll be bad <laughs> okay. advice later. But I, I think that is the right way to learn even now. Learn as if you are only going to change the, the the colors of the film. Like, all you're going to do is take the photo, fix white balance and a little bit of exposure, and then apply like a film stock. Yeah. If you assume that's all you're ever going to do, you're going to be taking better photos than if you are planning for like, well, I know that I can put in a fake sky or I can add a lens blur afterwards or I can do all... Assume you can't do any of that stuff. Don't watch those tutorials first. That's... I honestly think that'd be a waste of time. If you are looking up how to replace skies before you're looking up how to uh, measure lighting outdoors or how to shoot with natural light, you've you've got things backwards um, and and you're going to be handicapping yourself. That's a great point, you know, and and just thinking back on when I started, you know, now I'm really immersed in like the technical stuff because I I understand it, f-stops, apertures, and all the numbers. And of course, white balance is different now than it was with film because we could change that after the fact. (laughs) But uh, I, I didn't print all my photos in the darkroom and then go, oh, I wonder what aperture I used with this. You know, I wonder what shutter speed <laughs> mm-hmm. I used with this. I was focused on creating the photograph in the moment, you know, so I probably was more concerned about my composition than, and, you know, maybe, and then actually focusing on whatever I was trying to get a picture of than, you know, overthinking all of those other things, which are important. You know, you do need to learn the, ba- the basics. You need to understand the correlation between aperture, shutter speed, ISO, and what each of those elements are going to do and how they're going to affect your photograph. But, you know, also, it's important to to kind of just step back from it and and not get too flustered with that stuff. Because I I see I'll, I'll follow forums. I don't really get involved in forums too much, but every once in a while, I'll jump into a forum and you see people they're over concerned about a lot of it's with post processing, you know. But they're over concerned about something that someone told them they have to focus on. Oh well, you have to shoot in manual if you want to oh get your photographs. And <laughs> don't get me started I, on I, that one. <laughs> I know. I, and of course. I'm going to, you know, reiterate, it is important to understand what all of those elements do and how they relate to each other. But almost everything I shoot with is is like an aperture priority because that's what works best for me because I'm controlling the creative, the you know, what's in focus, what's blurred, what's, you know, whatever, and letting everything else just decide for itself and not focusing too much on like maybe what somebody told you you have to do or like, oh my gosh, my skin tone has to be perfect. It's what's the, what the skin tone, the skin tone, that frequency separation. People talk about frequency separation before they really understand how to create a portrait. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> so I think I've used frequency separation like once in my entire life, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that I think it's it's just good to kind of roll back and just focus on the basics and work your way from there. It's I understand though. I get when I when I want to learn something, 
I get really into it and I get all of the things I need. Actually, that's another good, another piece of advice that I have. Uh, When you're first starting photography, don't go too crazy with buying stuff because (laughs) you're, you're, you know, unless you have like all the money in the world and it doesn't really matter, but you might overwhelm yourself and you, you might just get more than you need. Like, and a good example is when I first started doing stock photography, I stock, you know, it's probably like uh, 2005, 2006, and I started to get my very first set of studio lights, which I actually still have some of them, Alien Bees, and I was like, oh, I'm going to get the best and I'm going to get the most powerful lights ever. So I got the probably the 1600s or whatever the brightest lights that I had at the time for what I was using them for. They worked great. And then I started doing food photography. And I and I learned quickly that the lights that I had for food photo- that that I was trying to use for my food photography were way too bright because with food photography I usually like to drop the ISO. I'm sorry, the sh- let me let me actually go back to my <laughs> basics. I want to have a much wider aperture so I can blur the background. But when you have too much light, you can't you can't do that. You know that's just like light. You just can't do that. So uh, it, you know it has to do with sync speeds, and I want to get too technical, but but. I learned that the light that I had that I thought was the best is not the best overall. It's just the best for specific circumstances. And I really should have gotten something that was uh, like less, that had less output of light, you know. So that's probably the one example that I can think of just going crazy and thinking I needed the best, you know. You can get, you know, really basic cameras that most cameras, I'd say cameras. I think all cameras are good. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think you can yeah. buy a pad camera these days. But there are some that are going to be better than others, and you don't need to spend $5,000. You know, you could find something for an entry level that's going to do the same thing and help you better, help you because it's going to kind of help you kind of scale back what you, you know, not try to force you to use all these settings that you don't understand. I realize how common this confusion is whenever I do uh, Instagram Live, which um, I don't know, I try to do like once or twice a week. And a lot of the time people just kind of jump in there and start asking questions. And a really common question is, what's the best first lens to get? Or what's the best <laughs> lens? What's the best anything? Uh, you, you really have to get rid of the idea of there being any best because it's, it's going to stop you from actually understanding what these things do. I mean, there there is the most versatile lens, which is how I choose the lens that's with me most often. So, you know, for most shoots, I bring a 24 to 70 2.8 with me because it is very versatile and works for the kind of photography that I do, which is uh, location, natural light. That's That's what I'm shooting most often. But I used to shoot more studio portraits, and at that time, the 24 to 105 4.0 was more useful to me. If you are just starting out, the 50 millimeter 1.8 can be a way to start getting blurry backgrounds, but it's also a really tight crop if you have a, a cropped sensor. like you're, It's basically a portrait lens, mm-hmm. so you're, you're also really limiting what you're able to take photos of, so you can't take some photos that you would be able to take even with your iPhone. So in that case, maybe a zoom. Like The point is I can keep going on and on and on, <laughs> but like there's different limitations and different strong points about every piece of gear. And if you've spent all of your money before you understand those differences, you are probably going to be frustrated in the future. And, you know, even me, I, I review cameras and lenses on YouTube and I still buy the wrong thing sometimes. It's, it's hard to make the right decisions. So try to be limited. Like don't buy too much early on until you understand why you're buying it or what exactly you're going to do with it. I think that's a really good point, Nicole. 
Yeah, it's it, but it, it is so much easier said than done. You know, I mean, if you were to look at, of course, <laughs> yeah. I've been doing this for a while, but if you were to look at my lens collection, it's it's pretty crazy. I have a lot of lenses, and some of them I don't really use that much. You know, and you kind of learn that you you find something you like and you buy it. Especially, I would say the lenses that you use, I, I use less frequently are are the mid-range lenses, you know, like the in, in regards to focal length. Because uh, I have 100 to 400, which I use. That has a very specific purpose. That's going to be landscape. I'm sorry. Not, well, it can be landscape, but it's mostly going to mm-hmm. be wildlife. I've used it for bird photography, you know, maybe photographing the moon or whatever. But macro lens, you know, that has a specific purpose, so I know exactly what I'm going to use it for. But then the ones in the middle is where there's like a big gray area. It's like, oh, I'm going to go on a trip. Which ones do I bring? Oh my god, I don't know which ones to bring because I have too many lenses. So, so then it's then it's trying to figure out. Well, how much gear do I want to run around with? You know, do I want to just have like two lenses? I think I went to I went to Tokyo and I only brought like two lenses with me. Yeah. You know, so I was like, I'm gonna be minimal with it. Yeah, I, I spent a few months in Europe at one point and, and made a point of only bringing the 50 millimeter with me, mm-hmm. just so I could live with it and and really get to know it. And it was basically an exercise. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's a fantastic exercise because it, it forces you to again, like when I was saying, when I learned photography back in the day, I probably only had you know was with a Pentax K1000 and probably had a, a 50 millimeter lens on it, nifty 50, and I didn't. Uh, you know, I was still early on and not really, and really in my understanding of photography. I probably didn't even consider that there were even even other lens options out there. Mm-hmm. That's what I had, and so that's what I shot with, and so that's and that's how I learned photography. But starting with one lens is a great way to do it. You know, it's it's it, but like I said, it's it's tough to tell people that because they're gonna say, well, how do I blur my background? And you go, well, if you have this lens, you might not be able to, so you're gonna want to get a different one. Well, which lens will do it? Well, this one. Well, what are you gonna shoot? I'm gonna shoot this. Well, then you might want this lens. You know, and then it just. <laughs> Man, we can have a whole conversation on this. I think it's good to plan to start out with two lenses, though. I know if you are budget constrained, that can be frustrating to hear. But if you only have uh, a wide lens or you only have a telephoto lens, you're, you're going to be frustrated and you won't start to learn the differences between them. You won't, um, you'll be missing out on some important lessons, basically. So, uh, you know, I, I would say it's worth having kind of a normal lens, which is somewhere around 50 or 35 and a zoom lens that allows you to get wide. But if you only learn with a zoom lens, the big issue there is that you never start to really understand. I think you don't even fully understand what a focal length is. You just stand in the same spot and create your composition by zooming in and out. And you don't realize the effect of stepping closer or further away from your subject, which is huge. It's a huge, huge effect how close you personally are, regardless of the lens. And you can not start to absorb that information. I think you don't learn that until you have a fixed lens. So it's really helpful to have, I think, both a zoom lens and a fixed lens when you're starting out, just to to force your brain to start working in some of those ways. Yeah, and a lot of this stuff is it takes it does take a lot of time. Even you know, I mean, we we started when there wasn't really a lot of information. The, the internet was like very basic. You know, it was like AOL and dial up. And now you can find everything online. But I could probably look back and go, oh, I, this was I can remember that year is when I learned that I understood light, for example, because I, I remember. I've been shooting stock for probably a couple of years before I really understood light and I could really like see light. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of the things that I really try to express to people when they're first learning photography is, you know, so it's like looking at your shadow on the street when you when you're standing and the sun is, is you know, shining behind you and you can see your shadow. Well, the sun is hitting your back, you know, so you know where those shadows are going. You have to understand things like that and actually not just see something that's illuminated, but actually 
consider, like, see the light, view the light as its own life force that's, like, draping over things and creating shadows. And it has different intensities and has different colors and has all these different things. That is absolutely, in my opinion, the most important thing to learn as a photographer. Because then you'll be able to see why photos are good or bad. And you'll be able to understand why you photograph things at certain times of day. It's it, But it took me, you know. Probably 10 years after I started really, you know, where I picked up my first camera in high school to actually really understand that concept. And it was just kind of clicked at one point. It never really was anything that I learned and someone taught me. I just remember going, oh, I get it now. (laughs) A learning exercise you can do anywhere you are. You can do it right now or wherever you happen to be. It's just put your hand up in front of yourself and just look at how the light's falling on Mm -hmm. it. I have hundreds of photos of my hand just as references. Like almost every shoot I do, there's at least one or two photos where I just stuck my hand in front of the camera so I could just see like, okay, which directions are the sh- is the shadow falling? What is reflecting right now? So a, a good example is if a wall is a strong color, it'll reflect that color back into your subject, right? If light mm-hmm. is, is hitting the wall. And conversely, if there's a white wall, it can create a really beautiful light. So if you're just looking around, you you may not notice it without having a subject in front of you. So your hand becomes the subject. You pretend it's, you know, the face of whoever you're about to shoot a portrait of, and you just kind of move it left and right, turn it around, see how things are falling on it. And I find that really useful because you're not you're not worrying about exposure in that moment. You're not worrying about composition. You're just looking at the light. And sometimes you just need to break apart those different elements of photography to let them really sink in. Like, just think about light for the next five minutes. Just think about exposure for the next five minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let them be separate lessons because they're not all the same thing. You know, a, f- a photo has different technical elements and different creative elements to it. And it can be hard to absorb all of them at once. Yeah. And then we have so much, uh, so much instant feedback now, whether you're using a DSLR or, I mean, I use a mirrorless, I use Fujifilm cameras and I actually encourage new photographers to look into the food, sorry, the, well, I, I, I like Fujifilm, but I encourage them to look into mirrorless cameras because you do get that instant feedback. So you are seeing everything through the lens, you know, through the camera as it's going to basically photograph. So that could be good. That could be bad, though, too, I guess. But it's different than when you have a a DSLR and you look through that viewfinder, you see something and you're maybe doing a portrait. The background looks blurry because that's just the 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 lens has the has to open what you know wide up just for you to see through it but when you actually create the photo it stops it down and it, it might not have that blurry background so you know, you go well why doesn't look the same when you have a mirrorless camera same thing like looking through your like a smartphone like an iPhone you're going to see that instant feedback of what the photo is going to look like as soon as you press the shutter um but yeah there's this it's like kind of like information overload too because of that there's you can't really slow down as much <laughs> You're just like, oh, well, I did this wrong. Let me fix it. Let me fix it. It's good, but then it's also, it's 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 tough. You know, depending on the personality and the person learning, it, maybe it could be too much information at once. Yeah, it's amazing how that feedback loop has just sped up over time where, yeah, mm-hmm. now you just look at the photo and you see what it's going to be. Last generation, it was impressive that you could take a digital photo and see it what seemed like instantly, although, you know, it's not, it's not even as instant as a mirrorless. And then when I was learning, like when I was learning even before iStock, the step before that is that I was working at, I got a job at a photo lab just so I could develop my own film, which was a way to learn faster so that I learned it. I worked at a photo lab too. Oh yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I same I mean, experience. it's, it's a fantastic learning experience that it's hard to recommend now because there's not so many photo <laughs> labs around, but it teaches you about color. If you're operating the machines, you're adjusting the color of everything coming through and you learn, uh, 
you know, CMYK and RGB and light density is. And, and that was my way at the time of speeding up the feedback process where if I, yeah, shot a roll of film last night and tomorrow I can bring it in and immediately develop it and edit it myself and, and see how it's going. And that felt amazing at the time. I felt mm-hmm. like I had this big shortcut that most photographers were missing out on. But you know now now everybody has access to things that are a lot a lot quicker to learn on. So that's so funny that you that you had the same experience because I always look back on that and go, wow, I I learned a lot about color. It really sped up my learning of digital editing because yeah, like you said, when you're running those those film strips, you know the little film strips through mm-hmm. the little thing and you push them and then you get the then you get the photos you need to fix and you get the photo and you go, well, this is too green. Let me add some magenta, or, you know, magenta, and this is too cyan. Let me add some red. So that was. A really great experience. It's really kind of unfortunate that we can't that, that there's really not a way to kind of mimic that experience anymore. Yeah, no. There, there's an exercise that I was put through when I was because uh, at one point I was promoted to lab manager, so I was running the lab. And the the thing that I was I was told to do by the previous lab manager is that I took one photo and I would print out a version of it with a color adjustment in every direction. So I would say, add one yellow, then add two yellow and add three yellow. Then I would subtract one yellow, subtract two, and the same with, you know, and I'd go through all the colors like that, print all of them off. So I had a stack of say 50 cards or photos and I'd shuffle them up and then lay them down on the ground and try to resort them into order so that try to find the neutral photo and put it in the center. And then all around it, breaking out the different adjustments that you've made and try to be able to recognize what does magenta look like, what does Mm -hmm. cyan look like. That was so useful for me at, at an early stage. And I think it's something that people now, even late into their photo careers, can be working and still have a very loose understanding of, say, white balance. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you cannot understand a lot of technical things. Like, you don't really need to learn a lot about Lightroom or Photoshop and still be a working photographer. But I feel like you you really have to learn that basic thing about about color is is white balance. You need to understand tint. You need to understand exposure. Mm -hmm. Like, those, you you have to figure those out at some point. The rest honestly can wait or you could you can outsource it if you want you can just buy a preset pack like there are ways <laughs> to take care of all the other things but if you don't understand when your white balance is too blue or too yellow um, or too green or too magenta uh, you're, you're you're really going to have problems in the long run I'll also see people sometimes I'll get the question because I make presets and I have some presets on my store that I sell and sometimes people will be like well you know, how do I get this look? Or maybe they're just in a general sharing on Facebook. They're like, how do I how do I create this look? And well, first of all, it's difficult to know a finished, like somebody's usually sharing like a really beautiful portrait or something that's, you know, very stylish and trendy. And it has like some type of an obvious editing effect added to it. But the problem is a lot of the editing effect for that photo is because of the way the image was photographed, whether it was the light or the color of the clothes that the people were wearing or the time of day or whatever. So it's, you know, you can take a preset for one thing and add it to a photo and have it look great, put that same preset on another photo and it's not going to look the same, you know. So it's, it's, that's another understanding of how to work with color is just actually setting up your shot to begin with so that it, it works well. If you have something in mind or if you don't, just 
you know, to making sh- make sure that your your color looks good before you you know actually bring it into the uh, computer to actually process it if you want to process it a certain way so that the, the maybe the different types of effects you're going to add are going to absorb well with that that image. Oh, for sure. That's I mean that's something actually I'm working on right now as well. So I'm going to put together a little preset pack of what I use every day, and I feel like I, I kind of have to include with it a little tutorial about here is also how to set your white balance and exposure ahead of time and how to recognize when there are issues with the preset because Mm -hmm. there's no magic bullet preset. They all can create issues in different environments. So today I was using my standard preset that I use for most things most of the time and it works great, but uh, the walls in the photo happen to be pink and the subject is wearing a red hat and obviously is also flesh color. So everything in this photo was some approximation of, of a flesh tone. And the preset that I use, it optimizes skin tones in a certain way, but it's treating everything the same. So that didn't really work. And I had to go in and specifically treat some of the colors differently. And if you're not aware of when you're running into those problems, or you don't know how to look out for them, you know, you can paint yourself into a corner with what seems like a, a catch-all preset, or it's the preset that your favorite photographer uses, and it works for them all the mm-hmm. time. But it's really helpful to understand some of the basics. And like I say, the most important ones are, are, are white balance and exposure. They have, even if you exposed it correctly, I'm doing a little quotes here, you got the exposure exactly right when you shot it. There's certain things that will change as you adjust it in post. The best example is like saturation and the contrast ratio either. Like you wouldn't expect contrast to shift as exposure goes up and down, but it does. You know, blacks become darker. Things can start looking faded as you as you move it up. So there's a lot to... There's a lot of information. It's yeah. a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot. It's a, you know, I, I still feel like if in five years, I, I want to look back on what I'm doing now and go, oh, wow, I, I really could have improved my photography or my editing, you know, because I know that there's still so much more that I can improve on. And that's everybody at every stage, I think, of photography is, is probably in the same boat. Do you still, I mean, I think we all do this. Do you beat yourself up about old photos that you think look bad now? Because, man, there's some stuff I just don't even want to look at anymore. Sometimes I do. If if it was like a situation where I'm like, oh, I was I've only been there once in my life, and I wish I had created a better photo, you know. So I do have those moments. Uh, sometimes I'll look back at photos, and I it's it's tough because we kind of get hung up on photos that we took that we love, and you know I want to I, I can't look at my own photos uh, unbiasedly. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at it, I'm going, oh, it's such a beautiful photo. Mm-hmm. I look back at my older photos, and sometimes I'm like. Oh, what did I do? I've, I've, I feel like I've digressed in my photography just because I, <laughs> yeah. for whatever reason. And or maybe like, like I went to Tokyo in December. I really didn't feel like I got anything good. You know, it was, it's a, it's a challenging environment for me. I'm not really like a street photographer in a modern city environment. You know, I, I prefer going to the, the, the more gritty places, Southeast Asia, Morocco, you know, those are the kind of environments that I really feel like I shine. So, I, I came back from Tokyo and and somebody made a comment like, oh, yeah, you could share some of your beautiful photos from Tokyo. And I was like, I didn't get any beautiful photos <laughs> oh, from Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I have those moments still. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't really beat myself up too much. It's more I mean, I do kind of cringe when I look at some of my old stock photos. <laughs> well, and what I would say is that I think some of the biggest regrets I have more than than my photography is I regret different processing techniques. Oh, yeah. You know, over-filtering, making things look too HDR, too saturated. Like, this is a lesson everybody can take home right now. Just less is more, especially when you (laughs) aren't sure what you're doing. And when you learn a new skill or you learn a new technique, try not to go overboard with it and crank it up to 11. You know, just 
use it subtly, gradually turn it up, and um, try not to to kill your photo, to strangle it with Lightroom or, or whatever you're filtering it with, you know? Yeah, you know, Brian, my husband, he has—it's funny you brought that up because he's actually kind of created a series of video training called Photo Redux, where he goes back and takes some of his— Oh, Maybe really awful HDR photos. Mm-hmm. You know, the photos aren't bad, but he just, the way he processed them, you know, he looks back at them and goes, wow, I really need to redo this. <laughs> so he'll take that and he'll do a, a, a different, he'll show the original and then he'll edit it, the exact same photo again and show the before and after of like what he had done like five or 10 years ago versus what he does now. It's a really cool series. You know, it really shows um, kind of our maturity and how we grow with our post-processing or just change or adapt to the current styles and trends of whatever's going on now. But yeah, I have some photos that I'm, sh- yeah, I have some, all- I have some photos in some of my books that I've had published where I'm like, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to do that myself too and go back and, and retreat some old ones. Yeah. I mean, yeah. A, a favorite one, like I um, shot a portrait of David Cross once, who is a comedian that I've always looked up to. And I was really excited to have that opportunity. And I did not filter that photo as well as I could have. So I'd love to go back and, and kind of create a more definitive version of that image, like that's a specific one I regret. I should, I should do that. I should crack open some old hard drives and uh, <laughs> make things look better than they did at the time. Yeah. So, what are you working on next? What can, where can I tell people to go check out what you've been doing? Right now, I have a couple books that I'm working on. They are self-published, and I, I do a lot of ebooks. I have a bunch of print-published books that I've done with Peach Pit in the past, and I've transitioned into doing my own. Uh, my own books and video training. Right now I'm working on a book on Luminar, which is a Skylum software. So I'm almost finished with it. I'm kind of waiting on an update from the software before I really kind of finalize it. That's the the struggle with doing software books. <laughs> Since I've never used Luminar, can you tell me what you like about it? Like what attracts you to it? So I like I, I use it all the time. I, I've used both Unone and Luminar. I kind of use them both about the same amount. Luminar is... I, it's like really kind of straightforward. You know, you, you don't have a ton of things going on. You, you open a photo and you add filters and there, you can do presets. Um, it works with raw photos because every software kind of has, they have their own filters. They have their own way of doing things. I just think that Luminar is really user-friendly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and I don't know. I just, I like, I like playing with it. They have some fun filters. They have one, um, it's called Sunrays. And it can, it's one of those filters that you kind of have to, not use overuse because it basically adds a <laughs> yeah. sunburst like a, like the sun is shining like behind trees or something. So I like playing with that just to kind of add a like I have a lot of like waterfall photos so sometimes I'll add like a little sun glow, not like a over extreme you know sunburst coming through the sky but add a little bit of like atmosphere kind of surrealistic light coming from the side but keep it realistic and make sure that the light's coming from the proper direction (laughs) you know so that there's not like weird shadows in different places and though wait wait, the sun is over there that doesn't make sense Uh, and if you want to find if if, if anyone's interested in actually like finding me and seeing what I'm working on uh, if you can my website is nicolesy.com it's n-i-c-o-l-e-s-y and I have a link for my newsletter there, and that's the best way to kind of stay in touch and kind of be informed on all the big things that are happening in my world. Awesome. And also, all this will be in the show notes, so uh, you awesome. can click them there. So, yeah, thank you again so much for joining me, Nicole. Yeah, thanks so much, Tyler. <laughs> 